and welcome to How to Adult. I'm back. <laughs> it's been a long time. Uh, for anyone that's been following me, you'll know that I now have a dog. And it's been so long since this episode was recorded that it was recorded on the day that my dog was born. And she's now seven months old. So, yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, the reason for the gap we'll perhaps discuss in a future episode. But in this episode, we covered a lot. So let's crack on. Today's episode is with my friend Sarah, who I met in drama school, and she changed careers in her 50s. Something I referenced my absolute admiration to in the first episode, and something I didn't even think was possible until I met Sarah amongst others at drama school. And a huge part in how I came to understand that I don't need to have everything figured out now, and just the thought of knowing that in 30 years' time I can lead a whole other life and do something completely different gave me a change in perspective and basically helped me to calm the earth down. So I thought it was only right that I actually spoke to Sarah to find out the full story and what words of wisdom she had to share with me. And oh my, what words of wisdom she had. Enjoy! Hi Sarah! Hello! Thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I know the basis of your story and some some integral parts, but the majority of the story leading up to the point that I met you last year, I don't know a lot. So I'm excited to hear today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose, like, I've been around the block for quite a long time now. <laughs> so when you cobble it all together... It sounds like quite an action-packed roller coaster of a ride, but actually, when you've lived it for like fifty-five years, it's not that really. <laughs> it is. I love it. So. For anyone listening, I met Sarah at drama school, and a really important reason as to why I wanted to talk to her today is because I've had a few messages as well since releasing the first episode about how people don't know anyone who has changed careers midway through their life or partway through their life, especially after having kids. And that to hear that calmed them down so much to know that, okay, I don't have to have everything figured out right this moment. Because if I change my mind in 30, 40, 20, 10 years time, that's cool. I can, I can change whatever, which is why I'm super excited to talk to you. Because I know that you changed careers and paths partway through your life. Yes, I did. Yeah, and I had three kids as well in the yeah. in the mix of it all. Um, you know that are all grown up, and actually, uh, my daughter is, as you know, is the same age as you. Yeah. So, um, and then I've got two boys that are a little bit younger. So I had three kids in the space of four years. So I thought I'd three get them kids done in four quick. years. Oh, I yeah, actually didn't yeah. know that. I never put two, yeah. and two together. I thought I'd just pump them out quick. <laughs> get it over and done with because Wait. I thought if I if I give myself a long break between um I won't go back to it you know I I wanted when I had my daughter I thought I really would like her to have a sibling um so there was always the plan to have another one quite quickly uh and then the third one wasn't really in the plans <laughs> at all to be honest with you but he knows that he's I'm not saying anything that he that I hadn't already mentioned to you uh, oh, in the past. That's too funny. But um, so he sort of then came along as well, and um, which was fantastic, to be honest with you. It wasn't <laughs> like we were well happy um, when he, he was got born. got three so in like four years. Three. Yeah, it was, it was quite hard work. But my, that sounds like hard... intense from the age of like two to seven. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, now I like to think that I look quite together and quite composed and, you know, I've got a certain style and things oh, like that, do. which I like pride also, myself Also, add, you look so good for your age. Oh, thank you very much, That yes. sounds rude saying that, but, like, oh, honestly. I don't mind. I like hearing it. When we and first I, do start... get... <laughs> I do get it quite a lot, but... When we um, first started I, I drama like school, most people who were there are much older than I am, but for a very long time, I thought they were my age. Yeah. DSL people look so much younger than they actually are. It's incredible. Yeah, and I think also it's energy as well. Um, I think that I, I quite... I've got quite a young energy um, and so that I think comes through. So I don't think it's necessarily like how you look as well, but it's also the energy that you give off. Absolutely. As well. And um, I think you can only have a young energy by having, working hard to keep your mind fluid and your body fluid as well. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Kind of like you've got to be flexible, I think. You just throw out um, so many larban terms in that one oh, sentence. I know. <laughs> so you, you grew up in Essex, that's right, right? Yeah, well, I was born, I was actually born in East London. So yeah. I'm very proud of this fact because uh, for many years, I was actually quite ashamed to be an East Londoner. Were you? Which is like a whole other story. But I went from, you know, like a real Essexy kind of core blimey accent to... <laughs> Trying to sound like the Queen. Yeah, your your accent now is quite so, neutral because when we first met, I don't think I would yeah. have known that you were from Essex. No, I, so that's what I mean. I I kind of like I I I keep that on the down low, <laughs> and it's bad, really. But apart I think from because, when talking about football, West Ham comes into the picture. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what we were saying. This is why I'm. So I was born in West Ham. And this is why I get really passionate about it. But I'm very proud now of where I come from. So I think it's important to know earlier on, and then we'll go back to the beginning, the roots. Yeah, the roots of everything, yeah. That you, with your husband, your family, own the Galvin restaurants, where you can find many of them across London, Dubai. Is that right? Well, we did, we... We had them everywhere. We were we were we were everywhere. You are everywhere. Um, You're still we, everywhere. Yeah, we, well, we've lost a lot. I mean, these last few years have been really tough um, yeah. for us. Um, and I don't want anyone to get out of Ireland because we're still really lucky yeah. with what we've got. Um, but we did at one point hit the dizzying heights of having something like you know twelve or thirteen restaurants or something. And I lost count after a while, which is I'm like sounds surprised. bad, but. When I got my new career, I became less interested in um, what was going on in the restaurants. But um, we started off in what with one in uh, 2005. And um, for a long time, our plan was just to have one restaurant. Yeah. So my husband, Chris, is a chef and his brother is a chef. And so they wanted to set up this restaurant and both of them were going to work there um, and cook and all that kind of stuff. It meant that there was always a Galvin brother in the in the kitchen in cooking the kind of thing. And then because my background was in more front of house side of things, um, and arranging parties and things like that, because that's what that's what I used to do or was doing when I met Chris. Um, my my role was to like set up 
some of the front of house systems like reservations and reception and things like that, set up those systems and then meet and greet people. And I was just like a hostess and, you know, people come in and, oh, hi, you know, da da So you had a golf in front of house and then you had the two chef brothers. And that's really what we, that's how far we thought really, we just thought we're going to do that. And then after about nine months, because the restaurant was just so successful, I mean, we would, we had no idea. It just went stratospheric. I remember before we opened, we were like, oh, I think I think the restaurant sat about 100 and so people. Okay. And we were like, oh, you know, will we get, maybe we'll get 45 people for lunch, 70 for dinner kind of thing. Yeah. When we opened, we were like literally doing 100 for lunch, 150 for dinner. Do you know what I mean? It just Incredible. like literally... We were just so not prepared for it. We had a little book, like a like a proper diary for taking bookings. So you'd write the bookings in. Uh, we had to get rid of that quite quickly. After about a month, we were like suddenly like, we need to get like a new system now. And then before we knew it, as the restaurant grew, we ended up with like a telephone system where we had like a central reservations with people booking like any restaurant. You know, like we had about... Within seven years, we had seven restaurants. Nice. So we started off with this little diary of like writing people's names down and their telephone number and how, how many people were coming to having this like fully computerized system. Yeah, they were they were the glory days. Of, um, so you had seven restaurants opened. in seven years. So that's mm. basically one a year, whether it actually happened yeah. one a year, but that's incredible. You had yeah. three kids and then... Not too long ago, now, fairly fairly still recent, not that recent, you decided you wanted to end that career and start a new career as an actor, which we'll get on to. But where did, where did, how, what did Sarah's life look like as you were growing up? Oh, well, um, this is where you need to get your violins out, actually, because, um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I was born in East London, and when I was about two or three, my parents moved to the leafy suburbs of Romford in Essex. Yeah. I am the eldest of six children. And so it would come as no surprise, really, that we didn't really have any money at all. And I think by today's standards, you you would definitely say that I grew up in poverty. I mean, I, we never had a television. Um, I had free school meals and... All of our clothes were cast off, you know, hand-me-downs. You know, my mum used to make a lot of our clothes, actually. And oh. um, so we we all wore the, the clothes that my mum had made us and, and that kind of thing. Um, I don't ever remember, until I became a teenager, I, I actually quite enjoyed life. You know, I didn't kind of like, I wasn't aware that we didn't have what other people had because we, we kind of lived in our own little bubble in a way. That's um, nice. You know, it was there was there was lots of things about my childhood that were were idyllic. Yeah. Um. You know, like my we had a big, a fairly big garden, and my mum and dad used to grow loads of vegetables, and our garden was just full of fruit bushes and things like that. So we'd literally just go and gorge on raspberries and you know strawberries. We'd we'd eat them all straight from the garden. They never ever made their way into the kitchen, <laughs> kind of thing. Um. And we had like pear trees and apple trees and, and things like that um and 
so and my dad used to like breed rabbits and breed dogs and like anything he could really to make some money to be honest so so we grew up it's like it was a bit of a it was a chaotic kind of childhood what did you want to be when you were a kid did you know what job you wanted to have yeah I did I mean you know from probably when I was when I was first started school and I was quite young I was really shy all my school reports, every single one went, oh, Sarah's so shy, you know, Sarah's so cautious, all this kind of thing. Um, when I was about 11, I that's when I first discovered drama, like act, acting in kind of like drama lessons as such, because a primary school, you're just all acting all the time. You don't really, it's not defined as a class, is it, a drama class or anything like that. Um and I really got into it and I realised, I found it, I realised it was a way that I didn't, I could actually be someone else. Like I didn't have to be me. So it helped me become brave in a way because I, I realised I could assume other characters that were brave. Yeah. That were courageous, that were warriors and that kind of stuff. Drama was the only thing where I got all A pluses you know, my report and, and that kind of thing. And um, and I won the school prize for drama two years running, which out of a, a school where you had like 1,500 pupils was actually quite an achievement. But, um, but it was never celebrated because my parents weren't really like that. So I never realised what a big deal it was until like years later. But so when I, when I had the, um, the conversation with the careers teacher about, oh, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I really want to be an actress. And, um, well, she literally just laughed <laughs> and said, you're going to need to rethink that, you know. <laughs> um, and I remember she gave me three options, which was you could either become a secretary or, you know, because I was quite good at English, so she goes, you'd be good as secretary. Um, you could go into nursing because they needed nurses um, or you could try and get a job in a bank. Well, I hated maths. I was rubbish at maths and I thought, there's no way I'm going to work in a bank. I really didn't fancy the idea of nursing, even though my parents were both nurses, probably because they used to talk about it all the time at dinner. And I just thought, no, thanks. That's not for me. (laughs) Um, And, um, yeah, you would just be tucking into your dinner and my mum would be talking about Mrs Jones's catheter coming out or something like that, you know. And it's like, so it kind of put me off a bit. And because I was... I grew up with this like health anxiety. I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going there. So the only option seemed to be secretarial, but I, I really didn't want to be a secretary. I just thought, what, what, how boring is that? You know, some being a secretary in some boring office or whatever. I thought, no, thanks. Um, so I had a part-time job at the time. Um, I was um, when I was in secondary school working in McDonald's in Romford. McDonald's. So, yeah, so McDonald's um, surprises me so much that you of all people worked in McDonald's. Not that I there's know. anything wrong with McDonald's whatsoever, but the fact that Sarah Galvin worked in McDonald's well, I, is I shocking. Like to think it's obviously because now I exude this kind of like slightly glamorous, um, you know, uh, look or whatever. Um, that people find it hard to believe that I worked in McDonald's, but actually, so I did. hard I, to I believe that you worked in McDonald's. Time. Wait, I so loved you it. went? So the, you were told you wanted to act, 
you were told that that was not an option. Yeah. You were given three options, but you didn't want to go to any of those. So you left school yeah. and worked in McDonald's. Yeah, well, I, I decided to do A-levels um, because I didn't know really what... So once acting was removed, I thought, well, I don't know what I want to do now. Don't really want to do secretarial. So I thought, I'll um, I'll do, I'll do stay and do my A-levels. But I just wasn't equipped to do them. I mean, they let me stay on to do A-levels, English, art and drama, which were my best subjects. But I just wasn't... I was quite immature, really, and I just wasn't clever enough. And I couldn't apply myself. I had no... I had the attention span of, like, I don't know, whatever insect has the smallest attention span. <laughs> you know, a mosquito or something. That's what I had the attention span of. I just I just wasn't emotionally um, more academically advanced to to do to do A levels really. Yeah. So after a year I uh, quit and I just worked in McDonald's full time. So I was working it part time and then I worked in it full time. And um I think I did that for about 8 or 9 months. And then thought to myself actually this is not going to be a job for life. You know, it's not going to be. And I, as, as much as I loved working in McDonald's, I mean, the people that I worked with were great. It was, we were all young. It was a great scene. You know, it was always like parties going on and everyone was getting off with everyone else. And do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I think I went out with about three guys that I worked with. <laughs> um, you know, the manager was quite cute. And do you know what I mean? It was all kind of like, it was great. It was good. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was a laugh. I thought, well, I need to do something. And I thought, well, the secretarial thing was still in my mind a bit. And I thought, well, I'll go to college and do a secretarial course. So that's what I did. I did a um, a private secretary certificate, it oh, was called. Fancy. And I did the Havering Tech. And um, I did it. It was a year course. And I did that. And then when I left, I thought, yeah, I'm going to get a job now. Whatever job I want, I'm going to get. Because when you go to college or university, that's what they tell you. They tell you that you, you know, you're amazing. <laughs> Everyone's going to want to, you know, you're qualified. You've trained. You came to the Everyone's right training. Gonna wanna We've give given you, a job. you everything you need, and you're going to be grabbed as soon Absolutely. as you leave the door. Yeah, because you're doing this training in the best place. We're the greatest, and therefore you're, you know, you're you've learned from the best, and you're going to go out and you're going to get a job. And, uh, of course, you go out there and you can't get a job. Or you can't get a job, the one that you want. Yeah. Because having decided that I did not want to work in some boring or what I consider to be a boring kind of like, you know, secretary for like a paperclip company or something like that. (laughs) I thought, well, what's going to be the most interesting environment where I could be a secretary? And I decided it was going to be like publishing or something like that. So I remember going to the uh, job centre to kind of get this secretarial job in publishing. And again, the woman just laughed at me because she said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd love a job in publishing or something. And she went, yeah, so does everyone else love. <laughs> she said, but I've got this great job, like the paperclip factory around the corner. <laughs> or whatever. And I was like, no, That's so not what I want. So... So I didn't have a job for a couple of months because I thought I'm not settling for I'm you know I'm not settling for any old job. I'm a like professional I've been properly trained to be a 
secretary and therefore I want a good secretarial job. Um, and of course I didn't get one um, for a good couple of months. And obviously my family situation was um, that me and my sisters, as soon as we were able to get a job, we had to get a job, which is one of the reasons I couldn't go into acting because I'd spoken to my parents about it and they were like, Sarah, you just can't do it because you're never going to work. You know, this is the faith they had in me. But they, and they didn't know the first thing about acting either. You know, it's, it's not changed over much, I don't think, over the years because then acting was only if you were middle class or you'd gone to a good school and you'd yeah. had good connections. That was your way in. Yeah. And now it's pretty much the same. Very Even true. though they tell you it's not, it's pretty much the same. My parents didn't know anyone. I mean, they didn't even know anyone that could give me any advice on I'd never, I didn't even know that drama schools and things like that existed. No, I you know, didn't either. And yet, obviously, people of my age did because there were people that were in that field that, that knew that. But not like my parents had no idea. It's not like they could say to me, oh, yeah, why don't you speak to so-and-so? They, if they know someone who does acting, you could do that, you know, or whatever. They had no idea. Got to about two or three months, I hadn't worked, hadn't got managed to get a secretarial job. And my mum one day said to me, she said, Sarah, you are going to have to go and sign on at the Dole office just to get some money so that you, you can bring it back, so you can bring it home. But I remember going to the Dole office in Romford. I sat there and it was so depressing. It was just such a depressing... I was looking around at everyone and I just thought, I just don't... I can't... I can't think, not that I was sitting there thinking I was better than anyone, because obviously my upbringing didn't kind of lead me to that conclusion. But I just thought, no, I know that I'm, I'm, I've got capabilities. And I was sitting there thinking, I feel a fraud being here, um, claiming money, because I can work. I, you know, I could have gone back to McDonald's and got a job. Yeah. You know, I didn't need to get money from the state. So I, I I walked out. I didn't even see anyone. I walked out. I got on a bus. I went to London and I thought, I'm going to try and get a job in London and maybe there'll be more opportunities there. And um, I went in That day? To... Yeah, that day. Yeah. You just got on the I bus just... and was like, off to London. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously from Romford, you could get a bus to, well, you could get a bus to Stratford and then you could get another bus from Stratford to, London, to like central London. So, yeah, and I got off, I don't know why. Um, I think it's because I was going down from Liverpool Street along by St Paul's and that kind of stuff, looking out bus window kind of thing. And I saw at St Paul's there was a job centre. So I thought, right, I'll get off there. <laughs> so I got off, got off the bus, went, walked into the St Paul's job centre and I sort of said, look, you know, I've got this private secretary certificate and I've got, you know, I think I had three O-levels and two CSEs. Um, and um, I said, like, you know, these, this is who I am. And they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll put you on our books and that kind of stuff, and I'm oh, okay. So I kind of, not fobbed off, but they, they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, like, you know, yeah, we've got a fantastic job. They were like, we have this job love. for you right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I did, but I remember, um, I remember I, I, when I got on the bus to go home, there was an evening standard, and in the evening standard at the time, they had a section in it which was called creme de la creme, and it was like the cream oh. of the crop of jobs for secretaries and that kind of stuff. And in a tiny little box, 
there was a job which was a secretary to the manager of the Ritz Hotel. And I thought, that sounds good. That sounds like a good job. So I got in touch with them <laughs> and uh, got an interview. And I remember actually <clears throat> um, getting all dressed up for this interview. In fact, when I left um, my house, um, I said goodbye to my dad. And my dad said to me, he said, I'd give you a job. And so I walked down the road thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for business. <laughs> and uh, I went for the interview. It was, amaz- it was amazing because I'd never, ever been in a place like the Ritz before. So, and it's just so gorgeous. I mean, it's just like everything about it. So I went in and I went to the front desk and I said, I've got uh, an interview with the manager. And um, I sat down and I honestly felt like Cinderella had gone to the ball. (laughs) That's what I felt like. I just felt... A part of me, I was excited to be there. Part of me felt I had no right to be there either because I was looking at everyone and, and they were all, everyone just was beautiful. Oh. Like the whole the whole surroundings was, was a massive great chandelier and it was all very opulent and that kind of thing. And everyone just sort of sashayed around, you know. It was like, so different from like Romford. And I just thought, wow, this is like, this is amazing. I'd, I'd really like to be here. And then I, I had my interview, left. They said, yeah, we'll let, you, we'll let you know. But as I was in London, I thought, well, I'll have a look around the sites and all that kind of stuff. So I did a little bit of, you know, sightseeing while I was there. And I thought, well, I better ring my dad just to let him know that I won't be home like early, sort of, I'll be home a bit late. So I rang him up from the phone box and uh he said, oh, how did your interview go? And I said, oh, I think it went all right. You know, I think they like me and all that kind of stuff. He said, well, they've actually been in touch. And uh, I said, oh, really? But, yeah, he what? said, they'd like to offer you the job. And I was just like, I mean, I remember the conversation because the, I mean, I, I get a bit emotional here because obviously my dad my dad died in 2001. But the pride in his voice, I could feel it down the phone. You know, sort of like so proud of me for, for getting the job. Oh. And um, he said, yeah, they, they want to offer you the job. And I just thought, actually, that's so not. I mean, nowadays, they, no one would ring up and, and say to your parent, we'd like to offer your child the position. Cause, because now you can only talk to the person that, you, you know, you're dealing with. But um, yeah. I just thought it was really nice that he heard that news and that he was the one that was able to tell me. You know, he was able to break the news to me. I thought it was a really nice thing. And and as I say, he was so, he was really proud because, you know, to get a job at somewhere like the Ritz was quite extraordinary for, for where we where we come from and who we were and our working class roots to, to kind of go somewhere that was like posh. And not only that, but like be working somewhere that was posh was like something else, you know, it's almost like, Look, I could have told him I'd gotten into Cambridge or something. It would have been, do you know what I mean? It was like such a big deal. <laughs> I, I remember telling a few people and they were like, oh, the Ritz Cracker Factory. Because like no one had heard of the Ritz oh. Hotel. So they were like, oh, Ritz Crackers. I went, no, like the hotel, it's like a five-star hotel in London. And um, But I remember it, I do remember it being a big deal. But then the thing was, is that once I got there, so as I say, I was there for a couple of days like Miss Eliza Doolittle. 
And the personnel manager called me into the office and said, look, <laughs> we really like you, but you're going to have to try and do something about your the way you speak because um, the, I, I reckon that I'm, I, I kind of recall having a conversation with somebody because everything was done then by phone and that kind of stuff. It wasn't really um, done. There wasn't email and all that back in the day. You know, it was old-fashioned. It was phone. It was writing letters and that kind of thing. So I, I kind of vaguely remember having this conversation um, because obviously the, the manager of the Ritz, he had loads of very high-powered people ringing him. And I'm sure one of them must have said, oh, that's an interesting secretary you've got there. <laughs> Couldn't understand a word of what she said. Someone complained. <laughs> you know I, mean? so I think he must have had a complaint. <laughs> I didn't for one second feel aggrieved by this conversation um, you know, I, I I didn't walk out there thinking, how dare they say I should change my voice and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to sue them. I just thought, right, well, I don't want to lose this job. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to let my family down. I don't, I don't want to kind of like, you know, can you imagine going back home and saying, oh, actually, that job you were so pleased that I've got, um, they're going to sack me because of the way I talk. Oh. So I thought, no, I better, I better knuckle down and... So then I went through this weird phase of just listening to everyone around me trying to pick up bits of their accent and then try and speak it. So you could fit in. So I became very good at, like, listening to people and then however they were talking, I would mirror how they were talking. So I literally, I think there's a name for it. I think you call it, like, a sound shifter or something like that. Yes. But whoever I was talking to... I would just copy the way that they spoke. <laughs> Everyone must have thought I was taking the mickey out of them, but I weren't. But that was my way of, of doing it, of, like, learning this new way of speaking. But I loved that. I did that job for about a year or so, uh, and then I got offered a better job at the Savoy. So um, I went there. So, yeah. And that's really how I got into hospitality. I think what, what I discovered was with hotels, and particularly those really – gorgeous like luxurious five-star hotels was that they were like my that was like my theater you know that was my stage so because of the the vocal thing that I had to I had to change the way I spoke when I was talking to you know people that were like guests of the hotel and dignitaries and all that kind of so whoever was coming in I had to speak nicely but then of course when I was like back of house I could just be as core blimey as I wanted to be (laughs) do you know what I mean it was kind of like so there was this back of house and front of house persona that I developed and really it was like acting it was just like going on stage it was like so although yeah although I had to kind of although I couldn't do the acting as a job um I found a way of um building it into my everyday regular job that felt theatrical in in some way, you know, and I think that's how, that's why I stayed in that industry for such a long time without kind of really missing not doing acting. You know, it's sort of like, it wasn't a, it was, it was not an option to be able to act. So I quickly had to get over that and find a substitute. And that's what I did. You know, I kind of, I found a substitute actually that served me really well for, quite a long time and actually um I started off on quite a lowly kind of salary but by the time I'd worked 
really hard and got promotions and things like that. Um, I actually ended up on a pretty decent wage, which was enough to buy a flat with, you know, I bought a flat, I bought a car, um, all these things, you know, when I was like 22, um, I'd, I'd done that. So That's incredible so, for 22 to afford to pay for your own flat when not that long before you were at the Dole office and then were like, no, I'm going to work for myself. I've come yeah. from a family of five other siblings where we don't have much money and I'm going to make something of myself. Yeah, I think from the... I was really driven for what I lacked in academic and kind of like um, being clever because I wasn't clever in a in a kind of academic sense. But what I lacked in that, I was, I was very intuitive and, and, and I knew, I, I kind of knew what I wanted and I quickly worked out what I needed to do to get there, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I, and I only, I worked hard because all I knew, I, I learned from quite a young age, really, from my first paper round that I had when I was nine, that money was going to be the thing that would help me get what I'd wanted and hard work but hard work more than money was going to be the the thing that kind of kept me there. You know, it's sort of like anyone can earn a fast buck, but it takes a lot to keep it sustained and, and, and to have that kind of sustainability. And I always thought, actually, that um, the, the people that you consider to be the most su- successful are those that have been around for the longest so longevity to anything, I think, is the key. You've got to be in the game for a long time. You know, it's like nothing really happens overnight. Um, it's always, you know, even even if you look at people now and you think, oh, yeah, I didn't know them before. But then when you look into their history or their backstory, you, you feel they've been chipping away at something for 10 years or something before you, you get to, to know who they are. But I, I, I kind of thought that that was the only thing was the hard, was hard work that was going to get me anywhere and having that determination really um you know kind of i think all of the i suppose looking back on it all of the little things that i found difficult when i was growing up you know like the free school meals and and always being on a mission or I, I put that fire in my belly to get myself out of that situation so i don't want i don't want to be that person I want to be, uh, I, I kind of, I guess what I was looking for was recognition, more so than money. I, I didn't bother me. The money didn't bother me at all, but it became a byproduct of the work and the effort that I was putting in, in a way. I was just, I was fortunate enough to be in, I suppose, a job where, uh, and in an environment, a working environment where you could progress. You know, so you could, I started off as a secretary, but actually by the time I finished in hospitality, I was no longer a secretary, I'd become a manager. The secretarial side of it, um, although I didn't realise it at the time, but the secretarial side of it was my in. And then once I was in, then I could show people what I was really capable of. And I suppose that's the same with anything, really. you just got to get your foot in the door once you're there. It's, It's like what you do when you're in the room, but... And but I think, I think that's, yeah, that's what I I kind of took from that. All the things that I I learned was really from being in being in a room that I didn't or a place where I didn't want to be, and then kind of 
I suppose when I, the Ritz was a defining moment for me because I realised then that there were these other worlds that existed. And actually, that's when I began to travel a lot and things like that as well. And I realised that um, the the life, that I, the little life I'd had in the bubble that I was in in Romford wasn't really, that's what it was. It was just it was quite small. You, know, you realise how big everything is. And that's when you can see more opportunities, you know. Absolutely. I think for so many people, just the first step is always the hardest part. You can have a goal or an aspiration, but it's taking that step, that first step, that in, as you just said with the Ritz. Yeah. It's so hard, but the the drive you had to be like, I'm not going to stick around in this tiny town or this this poverty place that I've grew up for forever. I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to work hard. I think that's the biggest factor that I hope people can take away is that you you got somewhere because you worked incredibly hard and not because it just happened, it fell in your lap. You, you yeah. saw out all of those opportunities. I did. Did that hard work ever get too much? Did you ever exhaust yourself to the point yeah. in your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I do... When I worked at the Savoy, um, that was a big step up. The Ritz felt like a big family kind of thing. The Savoy felt like a really serious machine. And the manager at the time um, was terrifying. The discipline that you had to have to work there and the exacting standards was like on another level kind of thing. But by this point, I'd started there as a secretary to the restaurant and private rooms manager. And by the time I got to 23, 24... Um, I was the private rooms administration manager. So I was responsible for arranging all the parties um, that took place in. They had these eight private dining rooms that could accommodate anyone from between, say, two and 100 people kind of thing. And uh, I did, I mean, I arranged parties for like the Queen Mother and, you know, Princess Diana and things. I mean, it was like really, so this is like a girl from Romford now is actually meeting with people that, like, you know, I arranged Mick Jagger's birthday party. And, I mean, it was just, like, weird. So when, you, when you, you're dealing with people that have, you know, you obviously got money and they've got very, very high expectations, and then suddenly you've got to deliver that. There's no room for any kind of error at all. And that that is a lot of pressure. You know, if you, you imagine if you were having a birthday party, you'd want everything to go really well, wouldn't you? Yeah. And if it went wrong, you'd be a bit fed up if it went wrong. Um, at the Savoy, like, nothing could ever go wrong. And, of course, you had to be, you were in a kind of, like, a, a place where people's expectations were very high. There was no such thing as, like, you couldn't turn around and say to people, say, oh, actually, we can't do that. You always had to find a way of being able to do something like no matter what the request was and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I did. I pretty much had a nervous breakdown when I was working there because it was just too, it was too extreme. And, um, you know, I was still quite young. You know, I was only 23, 24 to have that kind of pressure on you. And so I left. One thing I learned about myself, which your your listeners are going to um, kind of be able to, relate to is that I really had the gift of the gab you know what we call the gift of the gab I could literally talk to 
talk and talk and talk. I, and I could sell, you know, people say to me, oh, you could sell ice to an Eskimo. Next, I asked Sarah why she and her husband decided to start their own restaurant. And this is what she had to say. You know, we, we started going out with each other. We eventually got married, had kids, all that kind of stuff. Um, and he was a chef. So his career was quite interesting because he'd also grown up in poverty as well. So our kind of like, our backstories were quite similar. Uh, and he grew grown up in Essex as well, though a nicer part of Essex than I grew up. Um, so we immediately connected on that. And then he worked for Terence Comrand for years. And I think about 10 years or so, during which time he, he opened about 16 restaurants for Terence. Then he opened the Walsley, you know, the, the Walsley on Piccadilly. He opened that. So um, while he was there, I think that's when he kind of, started to get a, a kind of an idea that he wouldn't mind actually having his own restaurant and then that's when we decided to have our own restaurants amazing so you opened your first restaurant with chris and as you you mentioned before it was just way bigger than you ever anticipated it was going to be so you wanted to open yeah one. And then what made you want to open seven in seven years? Yeah, um, we didn't really. It wasn't, it's funny because when we opened, like I think I mentioned before, we we opened one and we were just, in our minds, we were just going to have one restaurant. That was going to be it. But I think because the restaurant was so successful, then people came to us with like offers of other restaurants. So within the first nine months of opening our bistro on Baker Street, we got approached by the Hilton Hotel Group and they had a restaurant that they were looking for um, management of, which was at the top of the Park Lane Hilton. Um, and it was a re very old restaurant called Windows of the World kind of thing. It had been closed for a couple of years. It had been gone through a massive refurbishment and they were looking for someone to operate it. So they asked us. So we went, we ended up, going there and we still operate that restaurant now called Galvin at Windows and that's been going for about what 12 years or something um and then on the back of that we'd had that for a couple of years and then we got approached with a really good site in Spitalfield so then we opened our two restaurants there and so offers were coming in and, it, and if they looked interesting because the other thing that we found so when we first then split into two restaurants. We still had Jeff in one restaurant as the main chef and we had Chris in another restaurant as the main chef. So it kind of worked. You know, you still had a Galvin in the kitchen kind of thing. Um, but then what we found is that a lot of the chefs that had been working for us for a long time and a lot of the managers that had been working for us for a long time, by opening more restaurants, we were able to give them opportunities to become more senior within the company and that kind of stuff. So we, we realised that it was a way to keep the staff that had been loyal to us and we'd, we'd had working for us for a long time. We could give them opportunities then to take more ownership of restaurants and things like that. So that's kind of how it grew in a way because there was, you know, when you've just got one restaurant, you can only go so far with that in terms of your own development. But when you've got other restaurants or you're opening restaurants, suddenly it gives everyone a project to work yeah, on and that family. kind of stuff. Yeah. So you can, and we've had people that have worked for us for for years and years and years, um, you know, I mean, that worked for us for like 10, 12 years, that kind of thing. 
So it's a way of kind of being able to reward those people as well and give them something that they suddenly they've got um, a restaurant that they're in charge of and they've not got Chris or Jeff there or, you know, and I, I mean, I, I'm out of the picture kind of thing. So it was, it was nice. It was a good way. It was a good way for them. And I suppose that's in a way how it, it kind of grew. I kind of feel that Chris and I are probably very similar in that way, that we, we don't really just rest on our laurels, you know. We've always been a little bit like, maybe it's as a, a consequence of our upbringing, where you're always looking for an opportunity, you're always on the move, you're always looking to kind of improve your situation. Um, but we've never really just settled. We've we've always kind of thought, right, what can we do that's better? How can we better this? How can we better ourselves? How can we kind of um, grow rather than just staying? And I kind of feel like now, particularly, you have to be a bit like that, you know, ducking and diving and trying to find a way. Um, 100%, dipping your toes in many different pots I don't know yeah. what that expression is no well I think you dip your toe in the water don't you but then I think you have your fingers in lots of pies oh that's what it is they get <laughs> but, those fingers in lots of pies but there's nothing to stop you from dipping a toe into a pie if you want to go <laughs> if you really want to get if in, you want to go there because you, well. you do have to kind of think outside the box it's like I was saying earlier about you've got to be fluid in the way that you think you can't just allow yourself just to seize up at any time in life, actually, not even as you get older, but at any time in life. So, um, but but having said that as well, you it's hard to keep on that kind of trajectory. Sometimes it is good to have a pause and sometimes it is good to consolidate and to have a look at what you've got and reflect on it and then start again. So it's not just kind of blindly driving forward all the time. It is it is kind of um, having moments where you do just stop and you think, right, okay, are we still where we want to be going? And this is still what we want and, and that kind of thing. And then, of course, you've got to be prepared to take the rough with the smooth because we started off where everything was like going beyond even our wildest expectations. But then, as I say, over the last few years, with lots of things that have happened, like globally and um, and, and and those kind of um, things that the world and life throws at you, um, you know, we've we've had to say goodbye to a lot of our restaurants that were no longer performing. That we, you know, we couldn't maintain them anymore, and that kind of stuff. So then you've got to be prepared to sometimes let go. You can't just doggedly hold on to something. That it's not working anymore and i think that's you know? an incredible trait to just accept that well that's what happened and not see it as a failure it's just life things flourish and then things have their time and then you move on and yeah dip your finger in something else absolutely and i don't think you can ever think really in terms of that kind of that binary way of like it's either a success or a failure so much I've learned out of having failed at things. And actually some of my most kind of treasured memories now are things that were just like a complete disaster. They're always the things that I, you know, if I'm talking to people or I'm at 
party and dinner party or, or even having dinner with my kids and you're talking about things that happened in the past they're always the stories that people find the funniest like people get bored listening to success all the time because we so all true. like that kind of the battle and the, the I don't want to say the phrase the journey because it's been so overused but we we all like that kind of the struggle and the quest that's what we're all going for is the quest you know that's so, such a good point yeah i think i think i mentioned to you before actually when we were chatting on another occasion um about when my daughter was about 11 and i just opened a restaurant in harrods and it was a nice little restaurant actually a little bistro in the fruit and veg section it's no longer there um but it was there for about six years or so anyway when i was opening it i was at the breakfast table one morning and and I was looking at all the plans and because I helped design it. And so I was looking at all the designs and everything else. And there's these plans were spread everywhere. And my daughter, who was about 11 or something like that, came down for breakfast. And, you know, I kind of moved some of the plans out of the way. And, and she sort of, sort of showed an interest in what I was doing. And I was taking her through it. And she went, well, Mum, she said, you know, it's amazing that you're doing all of this and you haven't even reached your peak Wow. And I kind of thought, well, actually, I haven't reached my peak. I mean, I think at that point I was probably about 45 or something like that. Um, and I thought, no, you're right there. You know, go, sister. You know, you've still got a lot to do. <laughs> you haven't, you, you, you know, you're not washed up or anything like that. Here you are, you're opening in a restaurant, you're involved, you're spearheading in the opening of this restaurant. You know, you're actively and very prominently involved in it and um and it was like a really really exciting time and it kind of like it sort of showed me because she had sort of said to me she said oh you're so different mum from all all my friends mums that have kind of settled a bit you know yeah um and I don't know maybe they were kind of happy to settle but I always I never felt because I did have moments where I didn't work when my children were quite small um because my job prior to having kids was arranging parties, which is lovely, but it's so antisocial. It's, you can't have, you know, you've got parties that are going on all the time, weekends, evenings, all that kind of thing. Um, and Chris was a sh very successful chef, up and coming, you know, and he was obviously going to go places. So it wasn't possible for both of us to have these jobs that were like completely antisocial and have three kids, unless yeah. we wanted to get a nanny in or someone which wasn't you know we weren't going to go there so um yeah so I, I kind of had a, a moment in my life where I was I could have done that going out for lunch all the time and meeting the girls for a coffee or playing tennis for charity and you know all these kind of things that you do to try and fill all your hours but I was like no I don't want to do that because Work was always the thing that fulfilled me. It, I, I, I kind of, again, I think it goes back to this needing some kind of validation and recognition and all that kind of stuff. I thought, I can't actually just sit around having coffee or shopping all the time. I mean, I hate shopping, but I, thought, I can't just do that, meet up with the girls and organise charity lunches and things like that, although they are very admirable things to do. It just wasn't wasn't me. I just thought, no, I want to. I want people to take me seriously. I want people to. 
not that they don't take you seriously if you're doing all those other things, I guess. But in my mind, I was like, no, I want to be a successful businesswoman, you know, because this was my new path. This is where I was now. Um, so I suppose in a way that's why I always wanted to be working, even even when my kids were small. I was always kind of getting involved in other things. And I took myself off and did um, an HNC and an HND in photography because I had this maybe notion that I could become a professional photographer, which I did when, for when a did while. When did you do that? When my kids were really small. So I suppose Joey, um, who's the youngest, he would have been about three or four. Okay. Um, and Jess would have been, what, seven or eight, something like that. And... Um, so I did, before we opened, before I got more involved in the restaurants, I did a couple of years of, you know, Sarah Galvin photography, where um, I took mainly photographs of food and children. Oh, they, I remember they, you telling me this Those before. were the things, yeah, those were the things yeah. I had access to. So, um, and it was okay, actually. I know when we opened the bistro, we had lovely wood-panelled walls everywhere, and the designer had said, look, um, to Chris, he said, you need to put some pictures up on the wall or we need something. And he'd seen some of my food photographs. And he said, why don't we commission Sarah to do some food photographs to go on the wall? So I did this, my study in like uh, fruit and veg. Um, and I I photographed them all. And then I hand printed them all as well because my with my training, I'd learned all to be in a dark room and like kind of print your own images and, and all that kind of stuff so these pictures were supposed to go up I did about 12 or 15 big massive photographs they were they're all around the restaurant and they were literally supposed to be there as a temporary measure just have something on the wall until we found some other artwork to replace it all with and they stayed there for the whole time that restaurant was open really yeah they just they became part of the fabric of it uh, and, and now because we closed that restaurant a few years back, I have one of them in my kitchen now, of the, of the ones that I took. So we had, I, I took some pictures of some garlic that looked very phallic. <laughs> and of course so, you did. Yeah, it wasn't the intention, <laughs> it's just the way they ended up looking kind of thing. And unless there was some subliminal kind of messaging going on. And um, it's funny because we used to have guests that come to the restaurants because everyone at the bistro kind of had tables that they liked you know okay. so you'd get pe regular guests would ring you up and say oh can you give me that table four or you know they all even knew the numbers of the tables and said we want to sit on that table and uh and there'd be this one there'd be like one every round. i want to sit under the phallic garlic stop <laughs> so there was this a table that become the the, 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 the phallic garlic table kind of thing but going back to Harrods, because Harrods was really the, the catalyst of, of when maybe the acting idea came yes, into I'm my so mind. Yes, I'm so intrigued by you know. how, and I think it's quite profound, rare, that, that you didn't, because I know so many people, have kids. And then you're just like, okay, well, this is my life as a mum now and I'll just continue what I'm doing. But the fact that Jessie said to you, mum, you're not at your peak yet. And you were like, yes, I, I'm mm. just, I've, I can have a whole new venture. I'm going to start something else. I'm going to find fulfilment in other things still at this stage in my life. 
is amazing to hear about. Just the 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 world is literally your oyster, and that's so cheesy, but it doesn't matter what age you are. If you have a burning sensation or a feeling that you want to start something else, why not? Yeah, I, it's very, it's pretty. I think what I found quite interesting um, with a lot of stuff that I've thought of is that, that I've always had this attitude that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it. Now, obviously, I couldn't at like 50 odd become a prima ballerina. You know, there's certain things no, that you have to accept that that, have, that yeah, ship has themselves. sailed. <laughs> you know, you just can't do that, can you? You know, you just don't have that anymore. But I think that for a lot of things, so I might not be able to become a prima ballerina, but but I could maybe just do something in a dance way that might be. You can be. still do adult ballet classes. You yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be the ballerina. You, yeah. can still, you can still itch that scratch. You can yeah. still do yeah. something with it. Yeah, exactly. There's so I, I kind of feel that there was... Maybe because I grew up with people telling me, no, you can't do that, or no, you're not going to be able to do that, or that we don't do things like that. And I do think that I came I came of a generation that was a little bit like that. You know, my parents really kind of like, their their parents were like, or my grandparents would have been like, children should be seen, not heard, that kind of thing still. You know, you, yeah. this was what you were born into, so that's what you do. And you don't stray from that path because it's not your destiny. Um, but I kind of never thought like that. Even when I was growing up, I was like, well, why can't I do that? You know, who's who's going to stop me from doing it? Obviously, in my situation, circumstances did stop me from doing a lot of things because I just couldn't afford to do them. But it's not to say that my in my mind I... I kind of just let all that chip away and limit me. In my yeah, mind, well, I, I could still be whatever I wanted to be. Absolutely. What know? I find incredible about that is, and, and the, the journey to have, the journey to how you got here, is that even though you definitely had some boundaries put before you, and there's a lot to say about having a privilege and then doing something with that privilege, and some people have a more advantage over other people, but you've still been able to find fulfillment in something you haven't just settled for oh well I've not been dealt the best card since birth but I'm gonna do as the best I can to really enjoy the life that I have and not feel like I'm always hard done by I'm gonna strive to to what I can do and whether that it's an amazing situation you've been able to have to step back from work and go into a training for for two years but it's not like you always had that money you you'd spent a long period of your life working up to make sure you were able to have all those opportunities and you were able to do things like that and it wasn't like it was ever handed to you on a plate you've come mm. from nothing and you've it you've done whatever you can in the process to make sure you've provided yourself with a life that means you are able to step away for two years and do a training later after having kids yeah I mean definitely in terms of like the acting and the training when I so when I was at Harrods I was like I was there for a few years and I just thought this is it got to a point where I was like 
actually it's just not fulfilling me anymore and I did I couldn't work out what it was because I'd had years in hospitality the majority of which I absolutely loved but I don't know whether it was because in my mind somewhere and even it could be it could even be something like hormonally or something like that I must have been thinking I'm I'm coming to an age where if I don't do something now, I might not get a chance to do it. So I kind of feel that, even though that wasn't at the forefront of my mind, perhaps I was thinking to myself, the 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 windows are going to kind of like come be be getting closed a bit. So I might not be able to to do what I wanted to do. But even then, I wasn't really thinking of acting. I mean, the acting came about because I literally decided that I couldn't work in the restaurants anymore. I just I was just kind of tired of it and I wasn't enjoying it. And I don't think I was then when you stop enjoying stuff, you don't really bring, you don't really bring things to the party. Do you know what I mean? You tend to, you tend to kind of go in a a bit inward. Absolutely. I think that's a lot to say with the working environments. When you're not provided with the best working environment, you're not going to perform the best because you don't care. So yeah, yeah. if you fall out and of I, love I do think that. You, you know don't... when people like quit their jobs and they've got to work three months notice period or something like that, you know, once they've quit their job, their mind is not really on that job anymore. I mean, obviously they're Absolutely. paid to do a job and they'd be, you'd hope they'd be professional. But their mind is that thinking about what the next thing is going to be. And so it's really hard. I think once that switch goes off, it's kind of quite hard to kind of get it back going again do you know what I mean it's so commendable and very brave of you to have the realization that actually something I've enjoyed for so long I don't enjoy anymore and that's absolutely fine that happens and that's amazing you've had such a great run and now yeah actually I don't like so what else can I do instead of letting yourself for the next 30 years be miserable in a job because you've you don't like it as much as you had done before and that's not to say that you've never enjoyed it I think a lot of people make the assumption of like oh I should have I've they've never enjoyed it well no they they had a great time doing it and actually well one stage they realized that they weren't anymore I think so because I think there's loads of factors that begin to come into play as well so you know things have changed situations change all the time and relationships change and you know, jobs change and everything else. Nothing ever really stays the the way that it's it's it was. And and to be honest with you, I'm not sure I'd ever want that because that to me just sounds really boring. And you I know, to, if if everything was just the same. But some people like that. Some people like that kind of that the the kind of continuity and everything else. Um, well, that's great because then if they're still enjoying it, that's good. Yeah, and and also. I think because for some people they find a lot of interest outside of work and so you can have like a really uninteresting job but if you've got like a great family life and a great social life and everything like that then actually you kind of like you tolerate the work because you get paid for it and that allows you to do other things and go on loads of holidays and cruises or go around the world or do whatever it is you want to do outside of what you can do it but because Chris and I have, like, uh, we've always been, like, workers. And actually, our life, our lives have always been intertwined with work. So when you work in, in things, fields like hospitality and acting and things like that, for example, 
um, it's a lifestyle choice, and it's and and so it becomes like your work is, you, you know, it's not like a nine to five job. Your work is very much intertwined with your life outside of a work and and things like that. And so, you know, I'd find, for example, that I'd be up at midnight doing emails, and you know, at weekends I'd be doing emails and things like that, things that were related to the to the business and. And it got to a point where I was just like, actually, you know, I, I, I'm not really enjoying this anymore. I'm not enjoying being at one o'clock, sending emails and getting frustrated by things that within a work situation that I can't control. It's just become a bit too, I thought I'm not going to give myself an ulcer, <laughs> you know, yeah, you being kind of like, yeah. you know, not being able to to switch off from work. So I, I you know, I said to Chris, I said, look, I'm, I really would like to, step away from the restaurants now and he said yeah I think that's a good idea if, if you're not feeling it anymore then you don't want to put yourself through that and we, you know, we could afford to because obviously I didn't have to worry about earning money and I could afford to loot to not earn the money that I had been earning if you know what I mean but yeah. but I I kind of felt that I owed myself that because I'd got myself into a position where I could do that and that's why I can't really get annoyed or be resentful to anybody that has, that has made a lot of money. I know there's some people that are in the stratosphere of money that they've made kind of thing. But in my experience, most people who've got money have earned money. Not many people just get given money. You know, most people I know anyway have actually worked really, really hard to, to make the money. Um, so I was in that, I had that luxurious position of thinking, well, okay, I can leave because not everybody has that, but I yeah. can leave this job and I can actually do something else. I, when I gave up the restaurants, I was like, right, I can't just sit around doing nothing because I haven't changed my thinking over the last 10 years or so. I'm still not a lady who lunches. Do you know what I mean? I, there's, I, Even though I'm now t- 10 years old or whatever, I still can't really reconcile that and just be happy with not being known and not even being famous or anything like that but being known for being good at something just for having your thing yeah yeah I can't just go into that kind of what I felt was a bit obscure of, of obscurity really of just like you know playing tennis or doing all those things so um so I thought no I need to do something and then I that was when I kind of thought right here you've got an opportunity to do whatever it is that you've always wanted to do. And that's when I thought, I'll, I'll try my hand at this old acting business <laughs> and and see. So um, I had a chat with Chris about it and he said, yeah, I think you should go for it because, you know, he, he acknowledged the fact that I'd actually made a lot of sacrifices over the years you know, I'd given up my job to raise the kids and all that kind of stuff. And I'd put a lot of all my energies into raising a family. It's funnily enough, I kind of like, I look at how I raised my children and even that I kind of um, put a very professional slant on in a way. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, because I, because when I first had my daughter, I'd given up work and it was just me and her. And Chris was at a stage in his career where, as a chef, he was working all the hours that God sent. And I remember meeting up with a friend of mine 
And I said to her, I said, you know, quite frankly, I don't know whether I can get used to this motherhood malarkey yeah. because I don't feel, I miss, I miss not having my own identity now. I'm, I miss the fact that I'm just someone's mum or I'm someone's wife, but no one knows really me. You know, I yeah. kind of felt I was losing, I felt I was losing myself a bit really. And also I, the thought of like motherhood just terrified me in a way because I just didn't think I'd be that good at it. And so I had lunch with a friend of mine and she said to me, she said, Sarah, she said, if you, if you put as much effort into being a mother as you did into your career that you've had, that you ended up loving and you've been very successful at, she said, you'd be a really good mum. And I thought, yeah, I need to look at, I need to look at it differently. I need to kind of like, rather than thinking, right, this is it, my life has ended now and it's all down to me just bringing up a child. I need to think to myself, right, how am I going to look at this motherhood business as a business and be like really good at it, you know? And I don't think I did that bad actually because all my kids have grown up pretty well. So, and and they still like me. They speak to me and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so I kind of like that was the way that I approached that motherhood in a way. But then, of course, you then have 12 years of doing that, which is pretty much what I did before I kind of started to go back into more of a full-time work. And so with the acting, I thought I really need to give it a good stab. And I did a little course at the Actors' Centre. And when I look back on it, I was so bad. I mean, I was really bad because all my acting experience had been when I was 15 or or my formative acting learning was between the ages of 11 and 17 kind of thing. Um, So I was grasping at concepts that were really embraced back then. You know, it's it's almost a bit like if you watch 80s drama, um, like TV drama, some of the acting in that is just so over the top. I mean, you look at it now with this kind of like 21st, through a 21st century lens, and you're like, God, that's terrible. But at the time, everyone was like, wow, did you see that performance? That actress is amazing, you know. <laughs> now you look back on it and you're like, and I'm sure even those actresses and actors would look back on it and think, God, that was really bad. You know, I was so overacting there. <laughs> but of course, so I was kind of going into this new world of acting but with very much my old ideas, because that's all I knew. And a lot of it was hideous. I was just so awful. But we, the Actor Centre, they did this course, which was a month-long course, how to be an actor kind of thing, or acting for beginners or something like that it was called. <laughs> and basically it was four weeks, which was structured over four weekends, and they were quite intense, you know. It was like all day Saturday, all day Sunday, you're doing these acting classes, covering all aspects of acting, like voice, Shakespeare, um, all, all the little elements that you would see of classical acting kind of thing. And um, at the end of the course, if if you had, I think there was something like six or seven tutors that they would grade you. And if you've got a majority verdict you would be invited to become a member of the Actors' Centre. And if you didn't, then they would give you advice on where to go next kind of thing, you know. Okay. And, and so I did the course 
And I got a majority verdict, so they asked me, they invited me to become a member of the Actors' Centre, which I was very excited about. All these little stepping stones at the time. It was like a big deal. Milestones, yeah. Well, I'm a member of the Actors' Centre now. That's that's really something. Um, But I I recognised that I still had a long way to go because, quite frankly, some of the stuff, my approach to stuff was embarrassing. I mean, I look (laughs) back on it now and I cringe. I think everyone can who starts out. Yeah, but what was really good and what I learned was there was a couple of um, teachers there that gave me some really positive feedback. And one of the guys wrote um, something along the lines of, um, with more training and more experience, Sarah has the potential to be a really good actress. And I thought, well, I'm going to hold on to that. You know, I'll hold on to because there's lots of negative comments that I got as well in this big report thing that I had at the end of it. Um, but I thought, no, I'm going to hold on to that. Um, so there's something there. There's a little grain of something there. And if someone can see that little bit of potential, then obviously I can expand on that with this said training and experience. So then I had to sort of set about getting the training and experience. And, and so... I think by this point, so I was 48 at that point. That was that was the age I was at when I was doing that. I did a couple of courses at the Actors Centre, but because I didn't really have any kind of direction of of what how I should structure this new training, um, some of the courses I did were just like way out of my league. I mean, I was just like not at that level yet. So it was a real like scattergun approach to I just look at a course and think oh yeah I can afford that that looks good I'll do that but they were talking about things that I hadn't even come across and I was like oh I remember going to one on how to market yourself and like everyone was there with like these really fantastic headshots and a show reel and all that kind of stuff and I had none of that I, I didn't even know you needed any of that kind of stuff I remember one of the actors saying of course you need to get onto spotlight and I didn't even know what spotlight was it's like oh what's spotlight you know, or you need to get contacts, the book. And I was like, all right, okay. So, but I learned a bit from people, from listening to people and them sort of saying, yeah, this is what you need. Yeah, you put yourself in a place and, and everything that ensured like that. you knew what that stuff was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't go in, I didn't go in and kind of thought, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to do this course and then I'm going to be an actor kind of thing. Or at every step I was like, yeah, there's so much I don't know and there's so much I still need to learn. I joined That's a great a, outlook to have on anything yeah. in life, I think, to go in knowing that you don't ever go into something thinking you know everything. You absolutely no, don't. I, you could have had all the training in the world and you've still got so much to learn. Yeah, and part of me enjoyed that being able to start something at the bottom because I'd got to the top. And actually, when you get to the top, it's not that it's not always that great. You know, you're faced with like loads of problems and it's like, who do you go to for guidance or who do you look to for inspiration and things like that? When you're at the top, everyone's looking to you for those yeah. things. But there's, it's, you've got to kind of then try and find what you're, who you look to for that. There was something really refreshing about having older and more older kind of bones and being more knowledgeable, but also being an infant in terms of my development. Yeah. And I actually really, I really enjoyed that. I It kind of like was liberating to give myself permission to think, well, actually, 
I know nothing about this. Um, but no one expects me to know it either. You know, it was kind of like, I, it was a freedom that I hadn't had for a long time. So I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the little courses that I did, but I did get to a point where I was like, right, I can do courses until the cows come home. But actually what's going to help me get, actually get a job or, you know, a, in a production. So I auditioned for a couple of bits. I joined Mandy. It was called Casting Call Pro then, but I joined them because I managed to get one professional credit, which a girl had I'd met. She'd said, look, I'll give you a professional credit. So she paid me 100 quid to do a rehearse reading. Nice. And I know, I know. She got Arts Council funding and she was like, look, I really like you and you're good. So I'm going to give you this opportunity kind of thing. So I did that. Um, but... And I, I got parts in a couple of little plays and things like that. And I did a couple of amateur plays as well. But all the time I was like, oh, I really kind of could be better and I could be working um, with better projects. And that that was my kind of like goal to do. And there was something about just doing a variety of courses where I kind of thought I don't really feel like there's much structure. I still felt I was, I was floundering about a bit in the dark and um, so I kind of thought I I, I need to get a professional. I, I want to get a proper training where it's like a classical drama school training. I kind of thought that's what I want. Um, but when I started looking at drama schools that maybe I would like to go to, I was struck then. I realised that I was a lot too old for a lot of them. Because a lot of them, if they only do a BA or something like that. So I was looking on the website and looking at their past graduates and things like that. And there would not be one old face amongst anyone. In fact, their idea of someone older would be like 35. Yeah. Uh, and by this time, I was um, 51 when I went to drama school. And I kind of thought, well, no one's going to. No one's going to take me at 51. Um, but I knew someone who'd gone to DSL. So I thought, oh, I'll have a look on there. They look good. I'll have a look on their past graduates. And when I looked on there, there's all like these lovely, loads of old faces of past graduates. So I thought, right, I'm going to apply to, to go to DSL. And that was the first drama school that I applied to. It was the first drama school that I auditioned for. And it was the first drama school that I got offered a place at. I'm so glad. I can really, if I can say anything um, that was so good about DSL, was the fact that there wasn't an age limit. Everyone on our course was from completely different backgrounds, completely different ages. And for me, I learned so much from the people on the course alone let alone the actual content of the drama degree just the people that I would never have been put in a room with for eight hours a day five days a week sometimes six or seven I would never have been in this space where I can sponge from so many different walks of life so many ages and really are able to act in a sense that feels way more realistic as well because mm. who, in, in university, all I knew before that is is 
acting with people my own age, even at school. That's so unrealistic. Whenever is a 25-year-old or at the time a 22-year-old going to play my my mum? This is not going to happen. Or whenever are we going to be in a family setting or talk about from any walk of life? Like no one ever is really the, the same age. And I'm so thankful that there were people on our course of all different ages, all different walks of life, and hadn't just experienced school, uni, drama school, because that's yeah. what I had done. And I was I was a bit intimidated when we went in, and everyone, we had to talk about, like, our backstories, and everyone was coming out with the most incredible <laughs> things that happened to them. And I was, and again, going back to the fact that I thought everyone was similar age to me, I was like, I've got nothing to say apart from the fact that I went to the University of Kent and got a degree. Like, I have no life of experience. And now I'm so grateful to have been around for such a long period of time a group of people that did have all of this knowledge and experience beforehand because I learned so much from everyone. Yeah. One of the things, I mean, I think I seem to remember having, um, when we had one of our introductions um, to the school and um, one of the things that was, highlighted was the fact that um dsl did pride itself on the fact that no no two people were the same you know they were kind of like they had people from like all different nationalities different ages and um and just like everything everyone was like had been hand-picked because there was no one else at the on that course that was going to be like them when you finally get to do something that maybe you never thought you could do or never thought it would be available to you and although I didn't spend like 40 years thinking about it and harking after it and all that kind of stuff but, but when I was actually there I kind of suddenly felt quite whole as, as if like that was the piece that was missing all the time all the things that I'd be doing and all the stuff that I'd loved doing but there was always a little something that I thought, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was until I was in those classes, actually doing it every day, five days a week, you know, eight or nine hours a day and, and things like that. So I thought, yeah, this is actually the thing that I've been looking for. And now I'm here. Like now I'm here doing it, you know, because the reason I hadn't auditioned for drama school before I did was because I was just so nervous. I was just like, so I thought there's just no way I'm going to get through an audition. Um, and that's why I just kept on putting it off. I didn't even look at it as an idea because I remember going to previous auditions for like even a little amateur dramatic plays. The ones I auditioned for were actually really good quality Amdram. So they they were very serious and they they put on very, very good productions. But when I went for those auditions, I would be like terrified, you know. I mean, I just so and so and sometimes I'd come out of them and I'd, I'd laugh at myself, think thinking to myself that was just so you were so bad, that was so woeful. I kind of thought to myself, I thought you've got more energy and more about you in your natural person, like who you are, than you had in that audition when you're supposed to be giving off some kind of energy. It's almost like I'd, I'd step in to do an audition and I'd suddenly completely reduce myself as to who I was, you know. And it took me a long time to to realise that and to learn that about having about acceptance and 
actually accepting that you yourself are are enough, you know. And I think the more you kind of chase of something and sort of think, is this what they want to see? That's when you're doing yourself a disservice because I think that you lose a lot of the essence of who you are. But I, I do remember sitting in a, a lot of the classes at DSL thinking, I'm just, if I die tomorrow, then I'd be happy because I, I've made it. You know, I got, I got into drama school and I know a lot of people want to get into drama school and can't, you know, for whatever reasons. Um, That's the sheer a- volume of people going... And also the the amount of money you need and things like that is such a small percentage that actually do get that privilege. It was never lost on me that. It's a beautiful thing to be able to reflect like that. And I I don't definitely don't do it enough to sit back and think, Okay, yeah, where I've where I've come to this point now is great and just recognise mm. The little things, I think when you're striving for something, it's so easy to get caught up in that and then not sit back and reflect. Like, look where you've got to now. Even if it's just you've got through uni and you've managed that or you've you've had a career so far for a length of time or you've had this job for a while, even if it's not exactly where you, you're the end point of where you want to be, just to sit back and reflect is such a an amazing attribute to have. Yeah, but I don't think, I mean, don't beat yourself up over it because when I was younger, I didn't, I never really looked forward, but I never really looked back either. You know, I kind of like, when when you grow up not having much, you're very much aware that everything you do is from hand to mouth. So you kind of like, um, you don't look forward so much to 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 things because you can't, you, you've got, there's so much uncertainty about what's going to be in the future. And then you don't really look back because when you're younger, you don't look back. Do you know what I mean? You never, when you're, I don't know, even when you're 15, you don't look back and think, oh, when I was five, you know, that was a, do you? You just don't. You only start looking back when you've got less to look forward to. So as you get older, you kind of like begin to treasure all your memories more and your and your past more. And then you don't think so much. Where I'm at, you see, um, and this is what I've crafted for myself, is that I still am looking forward because I'm kind of like, that. I, I, I kind of thought to myself that here I could have a second career that could potentially be longer than my first career. You know, so my first career probably was about 20 years or was something like that, maybe 18. Um, and obviously... I'd only worked for about seven years before I had children, you know, so it's kind of like, but I thought here, here I'm at now with a second career that, you know, God willing. And if if I keep my health and everything else, and if people still want to put me in a play or something or, or short film or music video or whatever it is, or feature film, then I could like still be working like well into my eighties and I could have like a 30 year career in acting. So it's kind of like uh, I sort of feel that that's so there's a for me now that I'm kind of like look I do look forward to a lot of stuff but I also think you it's really good to have ha, get, allow yourself moments where you look back of things that you have achieved because it's very often it's easy to kind of think that you're not getting very far and particularly when you're in an industry where it is so hard to get jobs and to b- 
be constantly working and things like that. You have a lot of moments where you're not doing anything and you have a lot of, you have probably more rejections. I can't think of many other jobs where you would get as many rejections as you do in any of the arts, really, whether it's directing or writing or performing or, you know, um, being on the camera or whatever, crew. Absolutely. I'm sure all of those people, or anybody in the arts, I mean, my daughter um, trained to be an animator and she finds it tough, you know, getting those animation jobs and things like that. So anything in the arts, it's like, you know, so they're the dream jobs, really. And they're hard, hard. It's hard to get, it's hard to be continually working. So I think you have got to allow yourself moments where you get a job to kind of just press the pause button and just look where you are and in that moment and think, I'm really lucky to be doing this and I'm going to enjoy it. Even if it's like the worst play you've ever worked on, you can take something from it. You know, you, there's always things to be taken from any experiences that you have. You can always take stuff from it. So I do think that, you know, when I left drama school, because I didn't have another job um, and this was it, I thought I'm just going to audition for everything and I'm just going to take every single role that I get offered, even if I think it's not that great or maybe not where I want to be just yet. I'm going to do it. And I've worked on such a mixed bag of stuff. I've worked on some stuff that's been like really good, really nice, good quality a good amount of investment in it and, and things like that, working with really good people. I've worked with early practitioners that we're all in it together, really not having a clue what we're doing. And we've somehow managed to cobble something together and get a play play up and yeah. out there kind of thing. Um, and they're learning and I'm learning. And it's kind of sometimes that can be a little bit like you're, you're thinking, God, this is not really great. <laughs> but we're all learning it together. Um, and then you meet so many interesting people along the way, even people that you don't maybe automatically connect with, or you're like, mm, yeah, I wouldn't probably choose to be mates with you. But, but they're the people that make your life that kind of rich tapestry. If you just surround yourself with like, cotton wool and put yourself in this little bubble of only people that you kind of like then you kind of miss out on a load of stuff you know you miss out on that richness of of life and uh of just people people just can can give you so much they can take away i just tend not to i must admit i'm a bit naughty in a way that i tend not to surround myself with people that are too draining yeah. you know you know you can you do meet some people that have kind of what are these um energies that are quite that pull you down quite a bit and I've always been like it in life I've kind of always tried to skirt away from that kind of energy um but I know that I can be like that myself as well so you kind of have to find ways of not being like it you know if I if I meet people and every time I meet them and they say, how are you? And I say, oh, I feel really tired, for example. I'm going to feel really tired. I'm not going to be that interesting. But if when people meet me, even if I'm feeling really tired, if I say, oh, brilliant, it's been great at the moment, I, I already feel a bit lifted. 
So I kind of feel that sometimes you can trick your body and your mind into pushing through because it's so easy, and particularly in this industry, it's so easy and lots of jobs, to be honest with you, particularly when you're younger as well, when when you're learning, your learning curve is just stratospheric, really. You know, it's kind of like um, you're being having so much thrown at you and you're not quite sure which way to kind of turn and and that and you're not quite sure of um what you should do in certain situations and sometimes you might do something wrong or not necessarily wrong but on reflection you might think oh, i wish i hadn't have done it that way but that's how you learn stuff that's how when you get to my age that you're like Actually, I'm pretty sure now I know how to handle that situation because that happened to me when I was 26. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And now it's happening again. And, you know, you can do stuff differently. So I think I think you do. But I think sometimes you just need to plough head down and just plough on through stuff. But take moments to enjoy what's around you as well and, and to enjoy the situations you find yourself in and it's really weird because although this is a second career for me my first career now seems it shaped me in a lot of ways but it now seems a bit of a dim and distant past you know my first career so it has shaped me and and some might say it's kind of defined who I am now um but I always say to myself you know if I die tomorrow I would die as an actress, that was what I wanted to be. Yeah. That was the that was the thing. That was my dream job. And I've done loads of other stuff in between that. But you at know at some point you managed at to get some there. point that's it. At the end of my life, I would die have having been an actress, having been the thing that I wanted to be. Yeah. And it's so funny because I, I know I mentioned to you the other day about um Chris's mum, um, who used to do the pools, which is like a lottery, yes. like you doing the lottery and that kind of stuff. But back in the day, it used to be the pools coupons she used to do. And she always used to say to Chris, you know, when I win the pools, I'm going to buy you a restaurant, you know, all the time. That's what I'm going to do. If I win the lottery, if I win that money, I'm buying you a restaurant. And it's so funny because when we opened our 10th restaurant, I said to Chris, it's a good job you didn't wait for your mum to win the pools. Because in the time we've been waiting for her to for her numbers to come up, you've opened ten restaurants. Oh, amazing! So you just got to knuckle down and work on it. But the other thing I would say as well, I know, I know when I talk to my daughter actually, who's you know sort of like the same age as you. Sometimes it's really hard to know because you know what you want to do, and sometimes it's not always possible to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Yeah. And so for me. That was like that when I was young. I couldn't do what I wanted to do because circumstances just weren't going to allow that. And I think that's um, so true for everyone, especially this year, 2020. Career absolutely. Practice. Absolutely. You know, there's things that are always going to happen in life that are going to stop you in your tracks and you're going to think, I can't do what I want to do. But it's how you deal with it and how you approach it and how you kind of resolve it, that is what's going to kind of be the thing that gets you through, I think, and defines you in a way. Um, I I didn't want to be a secretary, but I found a way of 
being a secretary that was could sit within me, that was a palatable option. So I kind of took that route of being a secretary. But once I became a secretary, then that opened the doors for me doing other things. So I think sometimes if you can find a way of maybe doing something that you don't necessarily want to do and it's not going to be your long lifelong career choice but if you can find something where you kind of think okay this is not my number one choice and it's but I'm going to be able to live with it and who knows I might actually enjoy doing it then I would kind of encourage people to go with that but always keep one eye on the exit if you've got your exit strategy in anything, really, then you'll be okay. As much as I would say don't give up on your dreams when you're younger, I do think, and you alluded to me being quite a practical thinker, um, some of that came about as circumstance, obviously, because when, when you've got no money, you know, you can't sit there and think, well, I'm still going to dream of doing this. If your circumstances don't allow it, then I would say maybe find something that your circumstances do allow. But you don't need to let go of dreams. You can still have them. And providing you've got your health, I would think if you can look after yourself in that way, um, providing you've got that, then age should be no barrier to doing whatever you want to do, really. Even if you've had a few boring jobs in between that have not been quite... That fills me with so much confidence. Yeah, you should. you should go forward. Go forth with a lot of confidence. <laughs> and anybody who's listening to this should go forth with a lot of confidence as well. Um, and a lot of and a belief in yourself, actually, that that you can do stuff. You know, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. But um, you've got to have a lot of self-belief, particularly in this industry, but in any anything that you do, you've got to have a lot of self-belief. But not in a way to be, like, arrogant or anything like that. But I think they call it quiet confidence. You know, yes. to have that confidence that you when know you, just you can do stuff. believe in yourself is so important, mm. yes. Because not believing yourself provides you with so many barriers to just not do something that you're probably more than capable of doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can always... It's the easiest thing is to talk yourself out of doing stuff. You know, your mind is like, you know, that kind of voice that you've got. Um, and, and also... Sometimes as well, you know, I grew up with parents that, although they were very well-meaning, they didn't want to see me get hurt. So they were like, oh, no, don't don't step out of that or don't do that. Because, you know, could um, sometimes if sometimes you have to take chances. And I think parents naturally don't want their children to do stuff that's too risky or it's going to hurt them in any way. So they become a bit more shielding, shielding you know, to kind of like, oh, don't do this or, or, or don't do that. Uh, to protect but I think that yeah you've got to sometimes you've got to be a bit prepared to take that leap of faith um to go somewhere that sometimes you're there and you feel a bit uncomfortable being there you've got to kind of um stick with stuff I would say sometimes things are not at the beginning you might think, oh, actually, this isn't going to be that great, and it can turn up fantastic. And other times you can think that's going to be fantastic and it can end up being rubbish, you know. 
um, in anything, any job or, or anything like that, or even situations in life, you can think that. So allow stuff to breathe a little bit and just to to see how they kind of grow situations and and that kind of stuff um that would be that would be some advice i would say but if but also know when to quit i I do think that's a good it's hard to do it it's hard to know when to edit it's hard you know to edit your own stuff and to to and sometimes you do have to say you know actually maybe this isn't the time is not right for me now to be doing this but that doesn't mean to say that it won't be there won't be a good time for that in the future but as I say, in terms of this, because I know you're talking about second careers, I've kind of almost forgotten what my first career was. <laughs> and now I'm fully embracing my second career. And like I said a little bit earlier in this podcast, it's sort of like it gives me great satisfaction to know that of all the things that I've achieved, because obviously having kids is is kind of my biggest achievement and being involved in a wonderful family and and all that kind of stuff is a great achievement but in terms of professional in terms of professional achievements um the greatest thing i can think is is that i will die being an actress because i i've done it and that's what you always wanted it is yeah oh thank you so much for taking a large chunk yes. out of your time today to speak to me on a bank holiday, <laughs> on a bank holiday and, and, and the sun is shining but it's lovely it's lovely seeing your wonderful face lovely seeing you too oh, yeah i know i know but it won't be long hopefully not ah this woman is the gift that keeps on giving in my life Uh, If you are listening, firstly, congratulations for getting this far. And um, secondly, as you have come this far, why don't you give it just, you know, a cheeky little like and a share. That'll be great. Thank you.